Welcome to the Exponentially Me podcast. Have you ever wondered if we can work better, if we get along better, and if leaders can really influence that? In this podcast, these are some of the questions we will be answering. We'll be talking to some amazing people from all around the world, not just thinkers on this, but the doers, giving you practical information that can make you a better colleague and even a better leader. I'm Exindeval. Is the primary function of leaders to produce more leaders? Rolf Nader thinks so. What do you think? Today I'm speaking to Vivek Chandrasekharan. When I first met him, he was a principal consultant at a leading consultancy firm. He has gone on to have senior leadership positions in some really interesting companies and quite a variety. What impressed me was not the MBA from INSEAD or the almost perfect scores on his GMAT, but that no matter what the circumstances, he stayed level-headed and analytical. I love the way that he's been challenging me over the last decades and helping me to think in different ways. He begins with talking about how leaders need to be objective, but still network. This leads him to talk about a leader's responsibilities, which he defines as mastery, autonomy, and purpose. We also discuss the problems young people face, such as stagnation, but also how academic qualifications are no longer the only thing needed to succeed in today's companies. We then spend some time discussing the type of relationships leaders have with those they lead and the role of criticism. We finish by considering if people are sleepwalking zombies and need a burning platform to wake them up. Well, without much further ado, let's hear from Vivek. I've known you for a little bit, Vivek, and I know you've gone through interesting careers and um, different leadership positions within organizations and I've I've always found it fascinating how you adapted, adopted and um, managed to make it into a success. A bit of of awe for you actually. Um, So I was wondering how much of a role does relationships play in leadership? If we would say leadership is a relationship or as a relationship, what are your thoughts on that? So first of all, it is a challenge for me to bring the words leadership and relationship together, right? And I'll tell you why. Because I think, you know, leaders are meant to be objective and relationships are never objective. So that's one, just just a challenger. I want to point out that challenge up front. Um, Having said that, career success is often predicated on relationships. You don't become successful in your career without nurturing a few good relationships along the way. And oftentimes, those people at the other end of that relationship grow along with you, right? I mean, you might start off at the same place, but you might end up in very, very different places. So it's kind of important for you to keep that relationship going. Um, I, you know, the last three career moves I've made, I can actually trace that back to a couple of very important relationships that I'd cultivated over the years. And that's that. That was what you know. That that's what resulted in those career changes, and also any success that that I've had over those uh, over those job moves. Um, but having said that, relationship. When you use the word relationship with with a leadership position, right? You, I think you impute that <clears throat> the leader, the said leader, has a certain form of relationship with a team, right, or an organization of sorts. And there I've become more guarded, more scientific in my approach over the years. Okay. 
not least because I've started working, I started working 20 years ago in a very traditional company or in a set of traditional companies, large companies organized by silos, by departments, uh, where each department often had their own set of customs and traditions, right? Their, their own language. And that's why, that's why silos, right? They operate as silos. And the lack of success that many organizations face is because of those silos, because you don't get to cut across those silos. So over the last 10 years, I think there've been a spate of commercial agility transformations, particularly in Europe, particularly in North, Northern Europe. And I've been, you know, I've been lucky to be, to have been part of a couple of those transformations, both for big and, and, and small companies. And I think you kind of redefine your role as a leader when you go through those transformations. Um, earlier in a traditional organization, a leader is somebody who sets the mandate, right, for the rest of the organization to follow. Um, whereas there's an excellent way to describe the current, you know, the current re leadership theory, it's about leading from behind. Right? You know, the general, you know, commandeering your, commanding your troops to get over that hill. But you're somebody who sets other people up for success. That's critical. And that could be the, a very good basis for relationship building, but it needs to be done in an objective way, right? It needs to be done in a meritocratic way. That's critically important. And, and why is that important? Because oftentimes we are dealing with different cultures, different, you know, um, different situations at work, very different personalities at work. And it is all too easy to, um, to link success with a certain personality or characteristic or things like that. And as a leader, you have to be mature enough to look beyond that, right? And to actually look at the full potential of the people you're working with. So I kind of, if I were just to quote agile theory, right? Um, a leader is responsible for three things uh, for, for his team, mastery, autonomy, and purpose. I think you may have heard of this before. Next one. So mastery is when every single team member has a roadmap to become a virtuoso in his or her chosen specialism, right? Or more importantly, they have the room to, to grow relevant skills. Oftentimes you, you also see in these, in these organizations that are 30 or 40 years old, there are a set of people whose skills are outdated. And you can either do the capitalist thing and kick them out at the first opportunity and the, at the least cost, or in a more enlightened way, actually set up a path for them to reskill themselves and become more relevant to the modern workplace. And I kind of choose the second path, right? So that's, that's mastery. Autonomy is an organizational thing. And that's where, you know, we say leading from behind, because then the leader's purpose is to make sure that the organization is not organized as an oil container, but as a set of speedboats. What that often means is that you need to challenge the departmental way of thinking and you need to start organizing your, your company into end-to-end -end teams that are as autonomous as possible, whose sandbox is very clearly defined, who can set their own goals and who are not structurally dependent on some other teams to accomplish those goals, right? And that makes it much easier for them to reach their full potential. They can actually act as a team. 
as a self-governing team, right, in control of their destiny. Autonomy is very much an organizational thing. It's about breaking up your organization into manageable bits. That is very much a dysfunction of scale. The bigger the organization, the greater the dysfunction. And when you have too many moving pieces, a team can't operate successfully. So what you want to do as a manager is to make sure that you're able to set out the sandbox within which a manageable team can operate to accomplish its goals, whatever those goals are. But it can also, you know, set those goals itself. And that's critically important. You don't want a leadership to a leader or the leadership of the company to set every goal for you. You want those goals to be set by the teams themselves. So that's the second bit of leadership, right? Autonomy. And oftentimes it means being silent in a room and letting, giving them the space to operate autonomously. Right? Um, I liken that, by the way, to the, uh, to the example of uh, four farmers trying to get a tractor out of a ditch. So you can either say, shoulder to the wheel, let's get this damn thing out of the ditch, or you can fix the tractor. And that's, and that's also the, uh, you know, as, 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 commercial, as commercial leaders, right, you often, you often are running on this treadmill, not of your making, to certain commercial goals, and you don't have the time to stop and think, maybe we should fix the tractor. The third bit, and the third bit is the fuzziest bit, is purpose. So mastery is fairly straightforward. Purpose is less straightforward, but is doable. And it's been done many times before. Sorry, did I say purpose? I, I meant autonomy, right? Mastery, autonomy. Mm -hmm. Let me repeat. Sorry, let me repeat what I said. The sure. third element is purpose. And purpose is often the most ambiguous. Purpose is where you lose people. Mastery and autonomy may not be that straightforward, but they're doable, right? You just need to pay attention and get it done and, and, and learn from your mistakes and, and you know, do it, do it better the next time. But purpose is very, very different. Purpose, it's, it's, it's a mistake to think that every employee in the company is just an employee in the company and a cog in the commercial capitalistic machine. That is a great way to destroy purpose, right? In any individual. And a way to instill that purpose would be to, to first of all, make people realize what, what challenges we face, not only as a company, but as a society. Get your organization to widen their circle of compassion. I think that's the first call to action that every leader has to go through. Very few leaders do that, by the way. Because you have to be so very guarded when you talk to the public markets and, you know, your investors and your saying that very often what you what you find. And I was just looking at a at the interview of a of a really good CEO who I who I follow, whose name I shall withhold. And I was reflecting on the fact that every single answer she gave on these public fora were canned, meaningless tripe. Purpose needs to have meaning fundamentally and meaning sadly, is very different to every stakeholder set that you speak to. When you speak to a group of small suppliers dependent upon you, meaning sometimes has to do with the depth of that relationship and how well you can safeguard them while all of us go through a an economic cycle, right? Whether they'll go bust, while you benefit from their, you know, from their, from their uh, misfortune, that's 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 meaning. That's purpose. That's trust as well, right? I mean, there's, there's that other word that comes in there. 
uh, to an employee, to a new employee joining the ranks, what does purpose mean? That employee needs to discover everything about how to operate in, in, within the company, what do commercial goals mean, what do societal goals mean. So it's it's that voyage of discovery, and you need to be you need to use language that is accessible to that employee, to a stakeholder, to a financial stakeholder. Frankly, I, I don't know what does meaning mean. <laughs> These days, all it means is, uh, can I please deliver my ROI on time? And thank you very much, right? And do I have a story, a me too story like every other company on the on the street? So I'm, I'm not very much concerned about that, that constituency, right? But you've got to, I mean, the key point that I was trying to make here at Exton was purpose is often where leaders trip and fall, right? And you can very well set up a very highly meaningful story in a certain context. But the minute you broaden the context, that story could lack all meaning. So you've got to be very careful and cautious about this, about, about purpose. Uh, and purpose is also the area where leaders are constantly held, uh, what do you say, under, under public attention. That people are constantly looking at them and saying, how would you respond to this challenge? Take Corona, for example. Mm -hmm. And during during the pandemic, as you know, we've had multiple shutdowns. And so, for example, with large companies, with retail chains, you've had to shut down those retail chains. Many of the people working there were not employees. They were contractors, right? And in Europe, we had the benefit of having social welfare nets. So those contractors were safe for a while. But then, of course, it wasn't... You know, that, that net didn't, didn't extend forever. So they went through a crisis themselves. And how you, as a commercial leader, responded to that situation was critical, right? And, and the, the fine line you had to, you had to the, the, what do you call it, the, the tight rope that you had to walk on was constantly balancing your commercial goals versus these, these other goals, right, of compassion, of, of building a team, of making sure that, they, they, that you commit to the trust that they have imposed on you. So that's kind of how I see leadership. And in all those three buckets, there is an element of relationship. I, I grant you that. Um, and it's probably the most apparent in the, in the, on the purpose bucket. That's where you really set up the relationship for life. Um, I still remember people, you know, who I last worked with 20 years ago when I started off just because of the way they were so approachable, right? I could go to them with any meaningless question from my, you know, as a, as a, as a fresher that I might have had, and they would give me, extend to me the respect of acknowledging my question and giving me a good answer to it, right? Yeah. And they didn't, uh, they didn't mollycoddle me either at the time. So they treated me with honesty and respect. That is important. Um, and I still remember them and I still keep in touch with them. And I guess that's what you mean by relationship, right? They set the tone of that relationship 20 years ago when I was a, when I was a junior in college. And who knows what I might have been. I might have been a complete failure, totally untested. But they, were, they, were exactly, they behaved exactly the same to every new person who joined the ranks then. And I appreciate that very much. I think that is that's an interesting point you mentioned there because um, we now know that human um, human psychological development or neurological development um, 
and the brain has a certain plasticity in development up to around about 25. And so those first years out of university or college or education um, in a company shapes the way that we relate to others. It's a time of the also a time in our life when we learn the most about intimacy mm-hmm. um, and rejection. Mm. And so um, and by, by intimacy, I mean like really not, not just physical intimacy as in love relationships, that too, but also being vulnerable mm. and being able to, to, to speak up and um, say things that you care about and right. share that with people. And the, the way that your environment then reacts to you shapes you for the rest of your life. What I find interesting is that you mentioned that And what I wonder is, are we doing enough with that in organizations? You know, especially in larger organizations, do we really understand that when people come into the workforce and by the time they're 27, a large chunk of that's been formed. And if we do not form this properly, um, we will not have the benefits for the rest of their working careers for starters. And secondly, we may damage them for the rest of their working careers. Sure. I could not agree more. I think the start is so very important. And if you're in a good start, that kind of sets the trajectory for your for your entire career and therefore your life, right? Um, I think the I think there are several challenges that young that young people face on on joining up, you know, the workforce for the first time. In Western Europe, the first problem is stagnation. Right? As you know, growth is um, growth is practically non-existent across the mature industries. And so how do you grow? You grow by, it's a red ocean. So you grow by competition. You grow by growing your market share, uh, which is not growth at all so from, a, from a financial point of view. right? And therefore, a person joining such an organization would naturally find himself or herself stagnating the first four years of their career. And that's, and, and that's a pretty nasty experience. In the first four years of your, of your life, right? You want to be climbing that ladder. You want to be climbing that hill as quickly as you want, as you can. And with, you know, with, with, with a lot of energy with, with the, you, you probably have the most energy in that organization, right? And also the most ideas. And you come from the outside and you've got this fresh new mindset. And if you hit an organization that's dead, that's going to be a problem. So I'd say that's the I'd say that's the first challenge that most European companies have. And possibly not a challenge that many consulting firms have, for example, operating the same markets. Why? Because in consult in consulting organizations there's a fair amount of turnover. So you join and there's always space for you to grow. And it's up or out. You know that. And so yeah. that's um, capitalistic, though that may be, that also gives a certain level of, yeah, that lends a certain level of vigor and drive and motivation to, to people to join the workforce for the first time. Obviously, this, this is not, I'm not talking about people who have been in the workforce for 10 years. That's very different. I'm talking about people who just joined, right? And the opportunity to shine, the opportunity to be made much of, the opportunity for your energy to convert into something tangible with something with impact, that should be something that that's extended to everybody. On that note, I, I, I want to be, I w- probably want to make another point, which is 
uh, and it's less so around here, but it might be around other markets in the world. There is a certain, um, uh, the meritocracy needs to be treated with a, with a bit of, with a, with a pinch of salt. Oftentimes we convert the meritocracy to saying, oh, he's come out of an Ivy, he's got an Ivy League degree. And so he should be performing several orders above somebody who's come out of summer college, for example. Right, just to take the American example, far enough away. So, and, and very often that's not true. And very often you find that work is sometimes a very good leveler of, of capabilities, right? Uh, that all of that academic, um, all of those academic standards and qualifications that you've, you've amassed over the years, some of which may be the result of privilege, very quickly gets leveled in the workplace. I don't mean it for the 1%, I mean it for the 99%. The 1% of mm. course operate in their own domain. That's yeah. a good thing. That's a good thing. But you need to obviously have the right kind of work culture for that. If you have a classist work culture, and I don't, I haven't seen any company that does these days. I think it's impossible for you to survive with a very classist work culture. Then that's toxic for people coming from all. You want work to be a great leveler and a, and a melting pot of very different personalities. And you've got to, you've got to make sure that you've got that kind of culture, right? Um, I'll give you this example. I mean, it's, it kind of breaks a stereotype in many people's minds. They think of Chinese companies as very, very hierarchical, right? I mean, that's the that's the oft-held uh, yeah, stereotype. And that may be true, may, may not be true. I, I don't know. But I, I, I used to, you know, as a consultant, I worked, one of my, my second job was a Chinese company and in China, in Guangzhou. And in a, in a, in a town hall meeting there, uh, I made the mistake of asking a, an embarrassing question, <laughs> you know, a challenging question. And I was greeted with respect and a very thoughtful answer of my provocative, you know, uh, brash question. And later on, one of my teammates told me, you know, that exchange was good. It was, it was very productive. And of course, you should say what you think. Then he also said later on um, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a more social gathering, he said, I didn't quite realize how young you were. Mm. It's just his way of acknowledging him. That, that, that was an interesting question. Maybe you didn't think through the question and how it landed. But that for me was the right balance, the right way of things. The immediate response was respectful and thoughtful. And then later on, I was also made aware that maybe there was a better way, a more respectful way that I could have asked that question. Yeah. And that for me was a learning moment. And for me, that kind of broke the stereotype as well, because I, I knew every leader in that organization was accessible. Yes. Right? I think that's something, um, I don't know if you know Kim Scott. She wrote this book, Radical Candor. I've heard of it. And um, one of the things she says in there is, I think she learned that at Google or Apple, and it was about that you take criticism on the chin if you're in a leadership role, in public, mm -hmm. absolutely. But you never give it in public, right? And so, and the way that you respond in public to criticism determines your, the perception of who you are as a leader. And I think if we we realize that leaders have a disproportionate voice, you, when you say something, it it lands much harsher and harder. I think we also need to take responsibility for 
treating people with that respect. I think it's a great example that you've used. I was in China a few years ago for yeah, for an exchange program from the Rotterdam School of Management, and the same experience. It, you you brought up with a lot of preconceived ideas about what China should be, and but when you're there, it it actually blows your mind. It's it's different. In so many ways, and then people are so much more welcoming, connecting, um, and compassionate than what you might think. Certain organizational structures are not. I agree with that. <laughs> I've seen some of that as well. But the people themselves are really respectful in a way, and, and, but also challenging and, and asking questions that from the outside we don't think are being asked. And I think that's really interesting, though. In this, right, I don't think there's one model for successful corporate culture. Um, there are two models that come to mind for me, yeah? and just for, based on my personal experience, there's one model which is what I think of as a football club model, right? And this is a model I find operating very much in in, in Germany, in in Holland, in in the Nordics, and it's. Um, it's a model where everybody is operating at peak performance. It's a very equal organization. Conflict is out in the open. And there are very few emotions involved. Right? So EQ means something completely different. EQ means being objective. That's what it means in this model. Okay? It means not taking sides. It means always expanding from a small problem to the bigger context. That's what EQ would mean in this in this thing. And the good thing is when conflict is out and about, then people can, for example, I can have a highly conflict-ridden meeting and then go for a beer with the same guy I had that conflict with after the meeting, right? And therefore, work tends to be lighter because you've got that conflict out in the open from, you know, from when the conflict is conceived and you don't keep it bottled up. Work is lighter, but relationships also tend to be a bit more superficial because you are working as one football player with the next. And next season, you might be working for another club. Mm. So relationships are that, that much more, that, that much less deep, right? And if I were to move to my current position in Belgium, I see something very different. And I, I have also noticed it in my very little experience working with maybe Southern European cultures or, or, you know, even parts of the UK where work, the work environment is, is very close to the family environment where troubles are shared. Troubles, not conflict, but troubles are shared. I feel troubled by this. And then somebody will empathize with me immediately. And then we'd figure out a way of how to solve it. Where things are still equal, but from a family lens. <clears throat> there are young people and there are older people in a family, right? And there are, uh, I wouldn't use the word wiser and less wise. Maybe that's, that's the, wrong, <laughs> the, wrong, uh, the wrong framing. Uh, many of the meetings happen in very intimate uh, places. Like, for example, somebody's kitchen. That's where... The majority of our presentations or, you know, uh, our strategy building sessions could happen. Work tends to be heavier because you share everybody's trouble, troubles, right? So work tends to be heavier. There is a bit of a heaviness around every meeting because 
Every problem needs to be solved, and not just by one person, by all of us. We share it. Relationships tend to be much deeper. So these are the pros and cons, right, of these two kinds of work environments. And I, I, I honestly think that the three tenets that I mentioned, mastery, autonomy, and purpose, can extend to both of those environments successfully. But not too many people feel comfortable working across these two very different ways of working. The family-oriented versus the football club, right? Um, and I think you need to know yourself as a person, because the more in, the more you invest into your career, and the more the the older and wiser you get, I think it's critical to know what sort of sort of environment you satisfies you, right? That you get your personal yeah satisfaction from. Now, random reflection, but. <laughs> inspired by you know by also this the breaking of bubbles right moving to china say you know um having having one's stereotypes broken there that's great but over time it's also important to understand okay what sort of environment am i in what is the what are the what are the um the the what do you call it the the operating parameters of this of this environment right what sort of relationship is this that i'm trying to build with with my colleagues with my peers uh, with my stakeholders in that environment, and but I don't know if this family versus club thing is at all relevant. But it's just something that struck me over the time. That's sort of how I describe it now to myself. And neither is better than the other, but they're different. Do you also do you also find then that conflicts that arise in either the sport club or the um, or the family environment um, is also typical for that environment. Is it is one more heavy than the other? Yeah, the conflicts tend to be uh, t tend to be quite a bit different between both environments. So let's talk about a crisis. A crisis happens when a part of the organization is underperforming, or the organization needs to dramatically restructure because of something, some external force, M and A, for example, right, or the fact that it's going bankrupt. You know, these are these are existential things, right? That that hit you, and then you've got to dramatically change. I think these two forms of organizations deal with that sort of st stimulus very, very differently. In the sports club, because each part operates fairly autonomously, and in always in close collaboration and conflict with other with other pieces, I would say it's it's actually fairly easy to do heart surgery. And in the family environment, it's always going to be a tragedy before it becomes, you know, before it becomes something more positive. Um, and I think it's important for leaders to understand that, to understand that aspect in both. So within the family, within the family-oriented world, right? I would say the leader's job is to assuage people's fears and make sure that hey, whatever the challenges, we will meet it because we have met this and far greater challenges before. Right? That's that's the leader's role. That's a bit of a pat patriarchal role, right? I mean, also or matriarchal. I don't know, but the, the the head of the family. That's that's what the head of the family usually does, right? In order to bring those people to full potential, you've got to first of all quell their anxieties and their fears, and you've got you've got to do that. A bit of a horse whisperer. And in the in the sports club, you've got to be careful because. Um, you are dealing, you know, if, if that were a pirate ship and you were the, you were the, you know, that is a pirate council, 
talking about how to meet the next challenge, you've got to you've got to be very careful that conflict and that you know that distant conflict that nobody has where nobody has that much skin in the game doesn't catch fire because it's very easy to break down your organization. What holds your organization together when the pieces are so distant from each other? You've got to bring them together. And that, and so your role as a leader is to to sort of bind those pieces, right, and find common purpose, and find a reason to be together. Um, so to that extent, your reason is the opposite from from the family uh, environment. Do you think it's? Do you think we could call that culture? When you look at, the, look at those two, let's say, distinct groups, mm. the, the family and the, and the sports club, do you think that is we would term company culture? Oh, yes. That would very much determine company culture, absolutely, at every level. Yeah, typically, what I see is uh, the, the culture that you notice at the, at the, um, within the leadership team, for example, percolates all the way through to the organization with lots of ramifications that might be completely unpredictable. Right, but it'll go down. You bet. It'll it'll take a few months. Bring in a new leadership team with a completely different culture, and it'll take a few months before that culture resonates across every part of the organization. Does it go that quickly? That depends on the company. So let's take a company like you know a really large company like Deutsche Telekom or KPN. I would argue that isn't a single company. That's several departments working together. Right. And so to the extent that you've changed the leadership team of one department, it's not going to transmit across those, you know, really thick concrete fortress walls that they have across departments. So there it wouldn't percolate across departments all that quickly. But I, I would argue it actually percolates fairly quickly within a department. Right. Whereas in the more agile companies, every single leadership team will always resonate through the organization and actually in a matter of days. Not even months or weeks, uh, weeks or months. I think when, but what I find interesting in this example is that human beings across cultures, biologically and and in the way that we develop and our neurological processes so develop, we're not that different. No. Um, what I find interesting then is that in these two different cultures, we're also talking about national mm -hmm. cultures and people mm -hmm. sort of like broad generalizations, but okay, people from the South and the North and Europe and so on. Um, I wonder how satisfied people are working in, in essence, in a culture that may not suit them that well. If they are not part of the, let's say, average or mm -hmm. the sort of half standard deviation that the culture mainly aims towards. Um, have you seen that happen with the organizations or with organizations where the culture is being usurped by people that just go like, nah, we're not going to do it the same way? Multiple times. And I, I started my career working in a consulting firm. I believe consulting firms, banks, professional services in general are highly non-inclusive places. At least they used to be. They probably pretend to be more inclusive now. But there, it is true that for them, success is very narrowly defined and at every level. And if you don't fit that definition of success, you're excluded. And you would get it yourself and you would leave that company and you would move towards something else, right? And so let's leave them out of the picture because they, I believe, are thankfully not the norm. But let's talk about corporate culture. Within corporate culture, it is true 
that corporate culture has changed dramatically over the last 20, 30 years. It used to be far less inclusive when I started working. And this is true across the world. So not, not just in one country or another, no, across the world. And I think one of the great steps that we've taken forward is to make that culture more inclusive over time. I don't think we've, we've achieved any sort of you know, long-term goal there. We still have a long way to go. But I think a number of glass ceilings have crashed down, which is fantastic. Um, which is fantastic news. And, I, you know, I'm just, I'm just reminded that the reason some of those glass ceilings came crashing down um, is, be is because they were hit by some crisis or another. It wasn't from some great, you know, drive towards self-enlightenment that those ceilings came <laughs> crashing down. Yeah. The 2008 crisis, I would say, inspired, well, women leadership in senior, you know, in, in, in management boards across Europe. The single biggest event that inspired women, inclusion of women in, on, on, on boards, right? Before that, I think the statistic was that women in senior management positions in the Netherlands, the percentage of women that is, um, or the percentage of women, yeah, in senior in senior board positions is lower than Pakistan. Okay, and that that is an oft, often held statistic pre two thousand seven. I doubted that's still true. I hope that's not true any any longer. Um, but corporate culture has become a lot more inclusive. Well, that's a good thing. And yeah. people have become a lot more open towards discussing what is success? What does it really mean? How can we be sustainable organizations? How can we deliver to our social commitments? How can we, you know, contribute to, our, to, to the goals of our society as much as to the goals of our shareholders? I think all in all, you know, the crisis for capitalism is... Um, has has driven some of these conversations around inclusiveness in a very good way. I think there's far more work to be done, though. Um, pull me in if you think I'm going on a tangent here. Uh, but I think there's a there's a book that inspired me, and it's Lessons from Patagonia. And it's written by the ex CEO of Patagonia. Patagonia is the you know as you know the travel and adventure company. And it was started out by this French-Canadian uh, called Yves Chinoir. And the book itself is written by the CEO after him. Lessons from Patagonia, 40 years at Patagonia. And it's one of those rare companies where sustainability is the goal. And so they commit a significant proportion of their revenues or their profits towards things like rewilding. Oh, what a beautiful word that is, by the way, rewilding rewilding the environment, right? And it's been one of the first companies to do that and they got punished over that fact many, many times and they still, they still held to their guns, right? Inclusion there took on very different tones. Mm. Um, it is not only about including a human workforce, but it's also including the spaces in which we work in and the impact that we have upon this earth, right? And for me, that is really, really powerful. But that journey has been a solo journey. It's one company. And very few companies have been able to follow that path. 
and even Patagonia, God knows when they go bankrupt. But I, I would say that's not a, you know, that could well happen over the years. So your point about... I think when... Sorry. I think you, you mentioned something really interesting there. She's saying that, um, in essence, never waste a good crisis. Never waste um, a good crisis, you, absolutely. <laughs> you said 2008 created a burning platform that allowed us to in essence, re-evaluate inclusion. And I think that was a huge springboard for women. Correct. Um, I do, however, think COVID has become one for racial inequality and poverty and showing us the, the impact of that on society at large, but also has focused our attention on, on what these inequalities create and the problems that it creates. So it, it's it's... On the one hand, it's good, you know, sort of getting the rock through the glass ceiling. The thing is just after that, you may have what to happens? rebuild the walls as well, you know. Right. Yeah. And um, what I'm struggling with at the moment is seeing how organizations actually going to do this. Because there seems to be a lot of knee-jerk reactions, but there's no structured conversation. Mm. And so there's a lot of anger, but not but no process to solution. In a way, you're, this great video um, by George Mombio of Garden on exactly this topic, which is at the end of the, uh, um, well, the Great Depression triggered a crisis, right? And then John Maynard Keynes and his clan created um, a different vision, which is very different from laissez-faire economics that created the crisis in the first place. And so Keynesian vision then dominated the world for the, for the, for the next 70 years, which is much more balanced, which is much more about worker rights, about inclusion, a different sort of inclusion, of course, right? Um, about, the, uh, about the state taking on, taking on a much greater role Right in making sure that regulations, for example, were honoured, or that we had good working hours and that exploitation was, you know, was minimised or eliminated, because those were the great questions of that age, right? And in the 1970s, that lost steam, and a new set of ideas came to the fore. And then you had um, Milton Friedman and the theory of neoliberalism, neoliberalism, right? Uh, which is all about the state has become a force for bad. The state has been crowding out private enterprise and the entrepreneur, and you need to give power back to the entrepreneur, which is an idea that made sense in its time, which is the 1970s and 80s. But that idea then grew out of control and out of control. And then you had, then we hit 2008 and the crisis, right? But since then, Unlike, you know, Keynes and Friedman, we've not had another set of ideas that takes us forward. We're still waiting for that. Mm. And I believe 2008 was not just a financial crisis. It sparked the beginning of several crises at the same time. Financial, which also comes down to inequality in its essence, right? But also the planetary crisis and global warming. And these two, I think, are going to inspire, hopefully, the next set of ideas. Now, to be fair, there are already ideas on the table. For example, you know that in Amsterdam, the city of Amsterdam governs itself 
not through the concept of eternal growth, but through a circular econ economy, right? Uh, and there are a set of ideas around how that circular economy could work from the point of view of uh, economics, right? How does it work? I mean, what does growth mean? What does success mean? How do you allocate capital? Uh, how do you how do you make sure that the humanity's goals or that social society's goals are, are met? But it's only Amsterdam, and uh, it's only one or two little you know here and there that you see these different um, different ideas come to the fore. The vast majority of us are in the zombie system where we carry on the habits that have led us to the crisis. Right? Yes, and I fear we haven't hit the crisis. Crisis hasn't hit us hard enough. That's the problem. Because a lot of us, you're right, never waste a crisis. But also equally, we never learn until we are slapped in the face by a really large crisis that makes us question our very selves. And that's the truth of it. And if you look at, you know, how billionaires, for example, have enriched themselves over the pandemic. And how now we've suddenly have this slew of vanity projects from everyone from Bill Gates to uh, Bezos at the fore. You need to ask yourself what's going on, mm. right? And how do we how do we actually correct ourselves from this uh, from this dramatic descent? Um, yeah. um, I'm afraid I don't have the I answer, think, but I I think the worst I, is ahead of us. I think I agree with you. I think we, we, we don't have the new ideas. We don't have the new ways of looking at But I think we do need to look around and see what are currently being offered. Or what, what kind of things are people doing that are interesting? I think one, one of the things in the pandemic that for me was quite actually quite fascinating to see was Dolly Parton investing in vaccines, you know, yeah. And it was just, yes, you can look at it from an economic perspective. You can look from a capitalistic perspective. It, it, if, it, if it does, if it um, succeeds, it's going like, to make a lot of money. But at the time when she invested, there was no clear solution. Correct. There, was no, there was no guarantee. And I find it interesting that how compassion translates into investment or how compassion translates into connection or to a new future for us. But I'm also aware that our times come to an end and that I can have these conversations with you for hours to go, you know, because I always I'm find it fascinating. Whenever you like. <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll probably schedule another session um, in a few months' time. And, but for now, thank you so much, Vivek. I really appreciated you coming along, and I really appreciate you having a conversation today with us um, about your vision on leadership and relationships and how the world works in business. I hope I didn't wander too much. No, it's okay. We'll edit that out. <laughs> cool. Thanks very much. Vivek spoke about how there used to be a narrow definition of success within firms such as consultancy and banking. In recent years, there does seem to be the appearance of being more inclusive. We've had two crises in as many decades. The impact of it has been felt widely and especially amongst our youth. I'm not sure that organizations are realizing that the youth are changing in their expectations. What will our future workforce look like? What will they desire? What will they demand? Maybe the answer is staring us in the face. And maybe it will be as big a change as Keynesian economics was. Perhaps what we need is an existential crisis to be able to embrace this.
Now go out there, be exponential, and do something nice for someone else. You can find us on the web by going to podcast.exponentially.me. We will also find additional media resources and some amazing insights.